Hello and welcome to another episode of Shattered Lives, the Irish Daily Star's crime podcast. I'm crime correspondent Michael O'Toole. I'm delighted today to be joined by Darren Lawler. He has a really interesting story and I know we're going to have a really fascinating chat today. Darren left school at 14 with no qualifications. He had a string of jobs from factory worker to taxi driver to managing director of a freight company. But it's his latest job and possibly his last, hopefully his last, job that is the subject of our conversation today. Darren is a barrister at law, concentrating mostly on criminal cases. He's also heavily involved in a campaign that barristers are running to highlight the low level of pay for many in that profession, which may come as a surprise for many people outside the the job. We have a lot to talk about, so let's get down to it. Hello, Darren. Welcome to Shattered Lives. Hi, Michael. Thank you very much for having me. Now, um, there's a maxim in journalism that there are no stupid questions. I'm going to try and disprove that maxim today by saying, what does a barrister do? Well, hopefully I won't give you a stupid answer. <laughs> yeah. What's a barrister do? So, quite simply, um, I use this analogy all the time to try help myself. And somebody stole it from me recently, so I'm going to give it to, give it to people again. Is that I defend people accused of, uh, you know, crimes, let's say, accused of crimes. And I'm at district court level, which is the lower level of the courts uh, in the criminal justice system here. And so what I do is, is that... You know, you go to your solicitor, maybe you're probably going to get divorced or maybe if a personal injuries matter, you're trying to sell a house. And the solicitor, I think, is like the GP. It's like the general practitioner of the criminal world. They're brilliant at everything and they specialise in lots of things, but they're trying to run a business. So what happens is that they may pass on the criminal case to somebody like me. And it's not because I'm better. It's just because maybe I'm dealing with it more often than they would, you know. So they pass on the case to me. I'll be instructed by the solicitor. And they give me a thing called a brief, and on that brief will be all the charges uh, laid against the accused and all the evidence and the background, so on and so forth. So what happens is that I go into court and I represent uh, that accused. So I would be kind of like, I'm just kind of maybe blowing my head up a little bit. I'd be kind of like, let's say, let's say the consultant of the legal world, a very little consultant of the legal world. And what would happen is I'd be able to advise the client accordingly in relation to the matter. If it's a very serious matter, they may have to bring in a senior counsel unless they kind of he or she is like the professor, let's say. You know, they're very qualified, they're very experienced, and they've been doing this a long time on that particular area of law. So quite simply, that's what it is. I represent people accused of criminal offences. Quite simple. I cover a lot of uh, district court cases in the CCJ. Is it fair to say that most district court criminal cases would be dealt with by a solicitor? Uh, well, a lot of them would. But since I came down 2015, you know, it was just known to me that you need to get into the district court and let's say learn your crafts, you know, learn the, uh, you know, the processes, how things are, get familiar with being on your feet. So solicitors do a lot of work, um, but barristers are instructed very regularly by a solicitor to appear in the district court. And as many people don't know, a district court is just a judge. There's no jury in the district court. Now, I know that solicitors can refuse a client. Can a barrister refuse to take somebody on? Um, well, the answer is no. They can't refuse to take somebody on, but there are circumstances where they can. Maybe it's not my specialty. You know, it could be a particular area I've never done before and somebody might need an answer now. But I'll try and refer them on to somebody who might be able to help them. Um, but no, I can't. Now, if I know the client, you know, I may say, look, I actually know him or her. and I think it's best somebody else uh, would deal with. I haven't turned down a case I didn't have to turn down the case except for once where I knew the client and I actually knew the guard prosecuting that client. So it was just best to kind of, 
stepped out. But any difficulties I have with whether I should represent somebody or not, I'll refer to the Bar Council and in you know, extreme circumstances, I'll go to the LSRA. Um, I haven't turned down anything yet except one, one matter. All right, and, and can you talk to us a bit about, does the taxi rank system exist in the Bar Council in Ireland? Yeah, the cab rank system, yeah. yeah. Oh, the cab rank, yeah. Yeah, so the cab rank system. I'm, I'm used to the cab rank system because I used to sit out in the cab on the rank outside the CCJ, you know. So quite simply, you know, that the uh, you know the, the case that you're handed in is the next case. I'm in NACE tomorrow, and I think I'm in the CCJ on Friday, Criminal Courts of Justice in Dublin Friday. Um, I don't think I have anything in court on Friday. I'm just actually in to give a talk to students. Now, I don't have to give that talk, but I'll be doing that on Friday. And then next week, I have a couple of matters on the CCJ on um, next week. But if there's any difficulty with those matters where I, I feel I can't represent that person, um, I would let the solicitor know straight away. And is there any area, specific area of criminal law that you're interested in or you practice more than others? You know, you know, I know some people would look after or would be involved in, say, child sex abuse material or, you know, assaults or f- financial crime, that sort of thing. Do, are you a generalist or do you, is there any one area that you specialise in? Um, well, anything that lands on my desk, you know, I, I look after. Um, I haven't had any rapes or murders or... Um, I mean, all sexual assaults are a concern, but, you know, very serious ones, let's say, going to the circuit court or going, let's say, to the to the central criminal court. Um, but I have dealt with things in the district court. I, I have one actually looking at at the moment. Um, so I wouldn't say I specialise in, in a particular, let's say, crime. Um, but if something was above my, comp- my competence, you know, I, I would make it known to the solicitor to say, look, I, I think it's best maybe somebody more experienced comes in on this matter, you know? So you you you, you became a barrister or you were, you were, you were admitted to the, the, the bar in 2015. But I was asking you off air because I know, like, uh, we think of um, Brendan Gren, he would do prosecution and defence as a senior counsel. So you were explaining that after a certain, is it after a certain time frame you can do prosecution as well as defence? Yeah, I think it's after a certain time frame. I'm not too sure what the time frame is. <clears throat> I've been practising since 2015, and obviously it's 2023. We've come through COVID. The courts had to slow down. Every business had to slow down. People had to catch up, you know, back on where they were financially and, you know, get back into the swing of things. So I do defence work only. Um, I don't think I'm going to prosecution panel yet. Maybe I can. But my main draw is for defence work. I don't have an interest in prosecution yet, but I wouldn't say no, not yet. And what? Why is defence your main draw? Is it you think you're helping people, or are you when you're literally defending them under the constitution? I suppose is that the, your big draw for it? Now, I grew up in Finglas, and the um, and everybody says it, whether an actor, a singer, whether they're poets or writers. Oh, we grew up in a working class area. I did grow up in a working class area. My dad worked for CIE and then it obviously turned into Dublin bus. Uh, my mum was a housewife, ran the house, ran the family, kept us all on the straight and narrow. And when I grew up in Finglas, my aunts had lived in Ballymun, they lived in town, uh, they lived in Blanchardstown. And I always just kind of had that bit of a closer connection to people from, from areas like that. What, what I mean by areas like that, m- money was tight, but communities were close, you know? And when something happened in the community to one person, it, it seemed to happen to the whole community, you know? Whether it be a death from drugs or whether uh, a suicide. I've been out in Ballywood many times where people had committed suicide. And I just always kind of felt that passion to to help people. 
And I think I got that, well, definitely from mum and dad, you know, they were always there helping people and putting the hand of friendship out. So when I start practicing law, my master, which is Luigi Ray at the time, he was a defense practitioner. So I just kind of fell in, into that area of law and very happily I, I fell into it because it was just like the, um, just like a glove. I just fitted into it perfectly, I think. Right. Now, let's get into your story because it's really fascinating. You mentioned there that you were a taxi driver, one of your many jobs and you would have been on the rank or you would have sat outside the CCJ. I'm really interested in your story. You left school at 14? Yeah, 14, yeah. So 36 years later, you're now a barrister at law. Yeah. How did you get from A to B? From A to B? Well, I left school around 14 and I went from the Mother Divine Grace in Finglas to, uh, which is the, like the, you know, the up to first class. Then I went to De La Salle, which was the primary school. And then I went to Benevent College and it sounded great, Benevent College. Oh, they're loaded, you know. And Benevent College was the secondary school. And I ended up in A3. I remember the class I ended up was A3. So A1, A2 and A3. So I don't think I was that stupid, you know. Um, I, I, I got in and, you know, did my work. But I, I just left school. There was no reason for leaving school. Um, I got jobs. I was working on the milk round. Um, then I started working on vegetable rounds and started working on coal rounds with a family who owned it, uh, a family friend who owned the coal business and started working with them. So there's no reason why I, I, I left school. But when I did leave school, my mum's brother, Brandon, so my uncle Brandon and his wife, Hilda, were on my case for the rest of my life <laughs> for not going back to school. And it's only when you get older you realise how right they were. But I was lucky. Um, this gentleman called uh, John B. Heaslip was his full name. So John Heaslip, and he had a shop down near us. And he said to me, look, he says, if you go to Foss, and he says, and do a course in Foss and Cabaret, he says, we'll, we'll get you a job, you know. So I went into Foss and Cabaret, and the, um, I got a job in Presco. And I stayed in Presco for maybe eight years or nine years. Well, what's Presco for it's the magnets? It was a, um, an engineering company. And I was a general operative working on milling machines, working with metal and working with plastics, you know. And I was a general operative. And the sad thing was everybody, well, not everybody, but if you want to do an apprenticeship like Jim Hayes, Michael Hayes and John Bourne were the directors. And he took a very personal interest to people that worked with them. They'd make sure you got your apprenticeship and you would progress through the company and maybe move on to bigger things or maybe better things. Um, but I couldn't do that. I, I hadn't got the exams. But not only could I not do it, I just felt I could never approach anybody because I had no exams. I just felt that, you know, my job there was my job and um, I wasn't going to do anything better or anything worse. Not that there was anything wrong with doing what I did, but I just thought that was my lot and I accepted that was my lot until a little bit of luck came my way. And I started working with bands. One of my friends was in a band, Shrine, Alan McAdams. And I used to go to their gigs. I had a video camera. I got off my 21st and I used to video their gigs, you know. And then the band split up and then Kieran, the singer, went solo and he asked me to manage him. And I was like, me manage not a hope, you know. So he said to me, look, I'll get you, I'll give you Chrissy Dignam's number of Aslan and Tony McGuinness's number and uh, get a few support uh, slots off them. We have a piano player. We'll go out, do a few acoustic shows. Aslan, we're doing all the pubs, every nook and cranny in Ireland at the time. And... I was starstruck. I mean, grew up in Finglas, major fan of Aslan. Now I'm going to pick up the phone to them. And the, uh, so we got some shows for Kieran, and then they started turning up at gigs. And then Aslan asked me in the Fingal pub in Finglas, Alan Downey said to me, we're looking for a roadie and a guitar tech, and we think you're the guy for it. I 
couldn't play guitar, didn't know what a roadie was. Guitar tech, hadn't a breeze. But Joe Joel, the guitarist, and Tony McGuinness, the bass player, took me under their wing and molded me into exactly what they needed. So I worked in Presco, kept that job full time, and remained with Aslan on things, until things went wrong, you know? And things did go wrong, as we noticed. There were difficulties there with Aslan. And the, um, so life just took a different path then. I worked on a, a delivering sandwiches for a company. Had to go up at 4 a.m. in the morning. I met a friend called Steve McGee. He was delivering sandwiches. He used to work in the music business and we became friends. And then what happened was I ended up leaving there and when I was leaving, when I left there, I worked for a company, a printing supply company. And then with a couple of friends, I started up a, a delivery company. And then we had to wind that up. That didn't work too good. And then eventually I um, put a taxi on the road. And Stephen put taxi on the road at the same time. So my life kind of progressed from 14 all the way through to driving a taxi. But no education. What age were you then? Driving the taxi, I think it was 2000 and maybe 2007, 2008. So I say around 35, 36. 35. Yeah, okay. 35, 36. And they're doing a few gigs here and there with the four of us and, you know, wherever I could get my hands on. My main passion was with Aslan. That dream was gone, you know. And yeah, I just had to concentrate on the rest of my life. So the taxi was the only way out. I was driving the yellow cab and I remember driving down the road and seeing the scriffer close with the yellow taxi and going, oh no. You know, and yeah, pulling outside the house and then start doing fares. And then this guy, Dave Brown, then uh, he said, I should go for a loan, get your own taxi. And I did. I got a Skoda car, kept it on the road. And then I think it was around 2008, and um, my life changed forever. Hi, so. I was driving down through Drumcondra and I was talking to Stephen on the phone. And I said, look, I have to pull in here. I'll ring you back in a second. And I picked up this girl. She got in the front and her two mates get in the back. And um, she wanted to go to Tyrrellstown. I'm talking to you now from Tyrrellstown. She kidnapped me eventually. And the, um, so she said, look, uh, I'm looking. Can you bring us to Tyrrellstown? I said, which way do you want to go? Like, do you want to go this way? Do you want to go that way? Oh, we'll go this way. So grand. And I was thrilled up the M50. Great. I learned a fortune. So the, um, and we were chatting. So she said to me, I've got a new dog. I'm not too sure what to call the dog. And then I got a guitar for guitar lessons. And I was thinking, oh, no, she must know me from, you know, doing the music days or something. So I said, look. I will give you my number. I'll ask one of my friends to give a guitar lesson. But I'll give you a shout tomorrow and we'll take it from there. So I dropped her off, rang my friend the next day. He said, yeah, I'll give a guitar lesson. Rang her the next day or text her, gave her the details and she wouldn't leave me alone. <laughs> she kept on ringing me and I was going, oh no, she won't leave me alone. And so we ended up going out for a drink. It was Ron Black she went into and... Um, was that in, in town across from um, the mansion house, I think, Ron Black's here. So, yeah, so we went there and then um, just the rest of my life began from there. And that was it. And how did you, so obviously you married that lady. So how did you focus on the law? What made you want to become a barrister? <sighs> Fiona made me become a barrister. She said to me, um, look, I think you should go back to school. She said, you know, and study law or medicine. And I was going law or medicine now michael i did a lot of training with weights over the years and i had, had a good interest in how the human body works and any injuries we got we had to fix them ourselves so we hadn't been any kind of diets that we had on training we had to you know mix and match the foods that we got like you know so we wouldn't poison ourselves but yet we we're getting the right nutrition in and so i can understand the medicine part but fiona 
is a medical professional, you know, she's a healthcare professional. She's an assistant director of nursing St. James's. But the law part, I was going, me do law, not a hope, you know. So I rang me mate Stephen. I said, she's telling me what to do already. <laughs> and he goes, boy, she wants me to do law or medicine. Oh, man, you'd be great at law and all that. And I said, Grant, so um, it was the night Michael Jackson died when she said that to me. <coughs> Excuse me. We were on Stephen's Green. Uh, we, I had done a bit of work with George Murphy at the time and, and this guy, Dave Brown. And yeah, Dave was a great guy, you know. And Stephen Brown, Dave's brother, he's in the car. And I says to Stephen, that's it, look, I'm going to walk and just drive my taxi and maybe go into college and study computers or something. So Fiona hit me with the law question there. So the night Michael Jackson died, I just remembered that night. We were watching Sky News. And we went into Dublin Business School and we had met the dean at the time. I think the dean was John O'Keefe. Oh, yeah, John, yeah, yeah, I know John. John O'Keefe, yeah. yeah. And Barry Halton. And I went in to the open night, sitting there with guards and people who work in the Department of Justice. And then it was me, you know. And yeah, it just started from there. So had I an interest in law? I had an interest in right and wrong. Um, but again, I never, I left school early. I thought my life was limited to driving the taxi and walking on coal rounds and anything I can get my hands on. And so. was it difficult to start studying? Disaster. Absolute disaster. In what way? Well, we went into DBS and the uh, Dublin Business School and um, I had done them kind of like a, it was kind of like a, like a CV application letter. And I'd written, Fiona's very kind of, you know, she likes things a certain way, you know, and she says, oh, you have to write a letter to them and, asked them, can you get into college? And kind of like an opening letter, like, this is who I am, where I've been. And they took me in and they said, look, and I mean, took me in. You know? And they said, look, they said, do you have any children? And I said, no, we've no kids. And they said, look, you know, a lot of older people come back to college, you're 36, but we, we think you'd be grand. We'll take you under our wing, John O'Keefe said, and Barry Halton, and we, we'll give you the tools. So we take it one year at a time. So when I went in, we had these books, we had these materials, and Michael, I, I didn't know how to study. I've just been given, you know, like I have a page here in front of me because something's written on it. I would think everything's important. I didn't know how to kind of narrow it down, you know. And so I learned that skill. But how I learned the skill was, was that um, Fiona would make me like watch the news and we'd record the news. She'd ask me to write down the important parts of what the journalist was saying. And I'd be writing down everything. And she'd be, when we play it back, she'd say, well, the important parts are the headline, you know, the bank was robbed or somebody was shot, wherever it was. And the other stuff is the information that supports the headline. So she says, so they've already done a fine. So you have to do it yourself when it comes to um, studying. So I was reading books and pages and trying to get used to the English. So I came up with this idea. When I was driving my taxi, I would read all the, the books and the notes into my phone and play the phone then through my Bluetooth system in the car, obviously when somebody wasn't in it. And I would learn the law and learn the text and learn the language and everything that way, you know. So it, it was a maybe I don't know, a backwards way of doing things, but it worked for me. So I found it very difficult to kind of get on that train. Uh, but once it started moving, um, I could control it to for my way of learning, you know. So it was difficult. And do you think... I know what your, your wife was trying to do there to get you to contextualise yeah. things. And I mean, just as an aside, when you're starting off in journalism, I have to say, I was exactly the same. I just didn't have a clue. But we were taught one thing, and it's about the, the in, in journalism, it's all about the pyramid. So the top line, 
is the most important line and the, the line that you have to put in and the rest it just goes down like a pyramid and it gets, gets less and less important as you go on it takes a lot of the journalists a long time to get that were you learning by rote or were you starting to contextualize at this stage um i still wasn't contextualizing i was literally like you know if i had a whole page i would learn the whole page you know i would learn the names of you know instead of like a and b went into a shop or wherever the situation was I'd be naming the, the case and the, whether it was the English reports or whether it's the Irish report. I was learning everything. I didn't understand what I was learning, but I was basically going in and saying, oh, look, if I'm asked a question, I can give the line back, you know? Um, but the support in Dublin Business Schools, particularly with the likes of Clem McCauley and Colin Dunley, who were lecturing there, they, they just... They just kind of... I mean, literally took you under your wing to say, well, look, you know, everything's important because it's there. But maybe some things are just a little bit more important, you know. So trying to get that skill was extremely hard for me. And it's something I didn't really master, I would say, until I went to the King's Inns, you know. But I was getting better because I had a lot of catching up to do, Michael. I left school at 14, you know. And for me to even go into Dublin Business School and pay the fees and park my taxi around the corner, you know. I mean, for me, that's just, I mean, like, you know, like the Oscars or something, um, you know. And was it a three-year course? Yep, Dublin Business School was three years and it was, um, we had no children at the time. And uh, so the first year, um, I was starting college on the Monday and Fiona says to me on the Friday, I think it was, I have something to tell you, like, you know. I said, yeah. And she goes, like, I'm, I'm pregnant, like, you know. I go, great. <laughs> and I remember saying to her, congratulations. Oh, congratulations, you know. And the uh, so the... Um, I remember going into college and what happened was the Fiona became unwell and the baby became unwell, obviously, before she gave birth. And Fiona spent a lot of time in the coom. So I was actually sleeping at the end of her bed in the coom on the floor and yeah, on the mattress. And I was studying at the end of her bed. And we went into, I was doing the exams, let's say tomorrow, where she gave birth to my first daughter, well, our first daughter, Katie Ellen, uh, the next day, you know, so I had to move the criminal law exams. So the, um, I, it was Dublin Business School were great. They moved the exams for me and said, look, that'll be your first sitting. So I went in and set them. And now I'm in second year. So we went into second year. Everything is great. You know, having a great time. And Fiona says, we look up something to tell you, like, you know. I go, yeah. She says, yeah, I'm pregnant again, like, you know. I go, great, yeah. So the, uh, that was grand. I like it was thrilled, like, you know. I mean, we had one beautiful girl and she's pregnant on the, the second baby. And I went in to do my uh, company law exam. And when I went in, I got a text on my phone, literally walked through the door, and Fiona says, I'm going into labour. I said, I don't believe this. So I had to turn my phone off, went into the exam. I was sitting there staring into space. I think it was Mary, Lo- Mary Rose Malloy, I think, was the uh, was the invigilator for company law. And she said, you okay? And I said, did we not cover this in the exam? I said, yeah, I'm just getting the text before I came in. I said, Fiona's gone into labour, you know? So they threw me out, and we went up to the hospital, and... I actually missed the birth. We went. I had to go home, take a break. Went up down and missed the birth. So we we had two girls uh, in a very short period of time uh, in my first two years of college. You know, so it was it was great. But in terms of trying to run your taxi business, work at night time, uh, look after Fiona and the two girls, earn money to pay the college, going in three three nights a week, um, it was extremely hard. This is one thing I'm I'm very interested in. You were taxiing and studying effectively full time, was it, for both of them? Yeah, yeah. Well, I I was taxiing for for Dublin Business School 
And what happened was, was that the, um, I had went out one day and I was outside. Now, remember, no, Frawley's in Thomas Street. Yeah, yeah. There. And I just says to Fiona, look, I says, um, you know, I earned 50 euro for that day. And I had to pay me fuel and pay for the, you know, eating and all that. So she said, look, you have to retrain as a healthcare assistant. So myself and Stephen went into training as healthcare assistants in North on Call. And then we ended up working in St. James's as healthcare assistants. So what happened was my King's Inns part of my study uh, was when I was a healthcare assistant. So when we finished Dublin Business School, when I was in there in the second year, excuse me, I'd met a guard, Fergal McSharry. And he said, oh, when we get out of here, come on, we become... Um, barristers like you know and that's like me saying to you look when we finish the interview let's join the rolling stones you know and uh so i came home says to fiona he wants me to become a barrister oh it's a great idea she said yeah we'll prep you for that i said oh here we go again so we started studying for the barrister's law exams we didn't get into first go we we, we get into the king's ins on the second go so on the second time around, let's say like for the King's Inns part, I was working in St. James's Hospital as a healthcare assistant doing 13 hour shifts. Um, I think it was three days a week, you know. And uh, that was tough because my wife worked in St. James's Hospital. So she'd be going into work, let's say, particular days. She'd be dropping the car off. I'd be driving the car home to my mum's, pick up the girls, go back to the house, study. Uh, Fiona would come home the next day and the whole road would start again, like, you know. That that sounds almost impossible, Darren. It must have been very, very difficult. It was incredible. <laughs> even when I'm even when I'm talking to you now, I just I, I don't know how we got through it, but we did. We got through it with the support of my mum, uh, the support of my dad. I mean, Fiona's mum was very good with my wife. I mean, she's the one that pointed me in the right direction. And even when I was doing my second year of the law degree, when I was driving a taxi outside the courts, another bit of luck came my way. And this gentleman gets into the car and I'm reading, I had a law book on the seat and it looked great, you know, the law book on the seat instead of the star, like, or the mirror or the, the times, you know. But both for all yeah, fantastic publications, but anyway. But you know, it was the law book and me reading this be like disaster, like, you know. And this guy gets into the car and I picked up the book and he said, oh, you're in a bit of difficulty there. I said, I'm doing this thing called evidence. And I start explaining what I did. And he goes, well, my name, he says, is Luigi Ray. And I said, oh, yeah. And he says, I'm a barrister. I'm walking there. And he said, if you're ever thinking of doing law, he said, you give me a shout and we'll have a talk. You know, if I was going further with the exams. So a bit of time went by and I, you know, Fergal had said to me, we'd become a barrister. I told the people in college, Barry Halton, oh, Luigi Ray was asking for you. Oh, Luigi Ray. And I got to know who Luigi Ray was. And then I started to, you know, he'd start to arrange for me to pick him up, to bring him to certain prisons or to bring him to let's say, maybe a different court. And uh, so we became in close contact and he'd point me in the right direction for, he wouldn't like do the exam for you, but he's not, I think you need to look at this book, you know? So he kind of guided me that way. So that was the second bit of luck. The first bit was Fiona and then the second bit of luck was Luigi, you know? So when you have those two massive kind of pillars of support and when you're under pressure, you know, you can't go wrong. I don't think you can go wrong. No, you can't. But there is a big elephant in the room here. Mm. And I mean, I considered years ago, I did consider doing King's Inns. I think you can do it as a night course. Would have been over, I think it would have been over two years. Mm-hmm. But you did it over one year. No. So King's Inns, you did it over two. Yeah, I did every second right. Saturday and Sunday. Uh, yes. And that, that was for two years. Um, I couldn't do it any other way. Um, the, the deal that we had when I was driving the taxi, Fiona says, you look after college and the fees, I look after the, the family, you know. 
But yeah, so this is my point. I remember going, Jesus, this is very expensive. Oh, it was. It, was. was it 10 grand a year or something no, for the King's no, Inns? Dublin, well, Dublin Business School um, was, I think, 5,000 or just under 5,000 a year at the time. And yes, that was three years. The King's Inns, I think, was 12,000 euro. But I was doing it over two years, so still 12,000, 6,000 this year, 6,000 next year. But they had payment plans available, you know? Well, I didn't know whether they were, I asked for one and I got one, you know? And I always had the fees on time. And if I didn't, it was only a phone call away to ring up the King's Inn and say, look, I'm going to be late this month or this week, you know, and they were understanding that way. So it was expensive. It's fair to say that uh, the law library, it's largely, largely people, peopled by barristers who come from a well-off background. Yeah. Um, when I say well-off background, to me, well-off background at 50, because I've been practicing in 2015, means many things to me now. Mm. And a well-off background is when you have to, to support your mum and dad. Or if your mum and dad has passed away or if they're not in your life anymore, you might support of other people. So I consider that being well-off. In relation to finances, you know, when I was growing up, we weren't well-off, you know. There were lots of things that we wanted. There were lots of things that we needed. And there were lots of things we had to make do with, you know. Um, so for me going into law, I did have that illusion that, you know, that the people in there, their dad was a judge or maybe a minister or maybe, I don't know, Bruce Springsteen or something, you know, that they, they had lots of money. And in the vast majority of cases, that's the reality. There are people who have, you know, independent resources behind them. Um, the beauty about Dublin Business School is very diverse, you know. I mean, they took me in, you know. So the um, so I was happy to kind of be part of that. But the King's Inns for me um, was the big challenge. My dad worked in Fisborough bus station across the road. And we used to get paid, he used to get paid in a tourist day. And I'd walk holding his hand, walking through the King's Inns. And I said, what do they do here, Dad? Oh, this is where they train the judges, he said. Oh, that's not grand, you know. And little did I know I would have been sitting in there doing the entrance exams. So the fact I was just in there sitting the exams to get in, you know, the entrance exam, was good enough for me because I, put, I placed limits on myself where I shouldn't have really, you know. But, but do you think, uh, and it's your answer, it's, yeah. not my, it's my question, yeah. it's your answer, do you think the setup is a bar to working class people getting into the law library? I don't think it's a, uh, I don't think there's a bar to people getting in to qualify as a barrister. I think that the bar would be read as in like a, the bar is in like, you know, like something holding them back would be maybe, you know, maybe their own self-belief or maybe money, you know. Now, I know there are some grants set up. I think the Susie grants are set up to, to get you over that. But I think the perception is the biggest bar. You know, I can't go there because my dad wasn't a judge or he or she's not a solicitor or, you know, I, I'm not from a political background or maybe I just don't have the money. So I think that's where the, the, the main bar exists. But once you get into the system and once you realise I can be just the same as everybody else by getting the barrister law degree, well, then you have to get back past the next stage. And the next stage, maybe some of your listeners don't know, is that the um, or your viewers don't know, is when you qualify as a barrister and if you want to practice that one you have to uh, be with somebody called a master and the master was Luigi Ray in my instance so I met him I think in 2009 and he nurtured me all the way until 2015 and then he became my master so the master was somebody who shows you the practice and procedure of the courts and obviously the higher courts because Luigi would practice in the higher courts and he did only defense work 
My second master was Mary Torrance, and Mary did prosecution and defence work. So I was Mary's devil from 2016, I think, until 2017. So you have to, after being admitted to the bar, yep. becoming a barrister, you have to devil for two years. Is that the case? No, you have to devil for one year, but I did okay. it for two years. And this is going back to me not having much schooling, you know, when I left school at 14. I just felt that I just needed to do more learning, more learning, more learning to make sure I was up to par with everybody else. So the kind of the, um, the, the bar I kind of created myself. So the, the you know, the kind of, the, that confidence, that there was a, the, that confidence wasn't very good, you know. And Luigi made sure. I started on the Monday. He had me in court five in the circuit court on Tuesday making applications. You know, Mary Torrance, you know, had me in court very, very quick when I did stuff at Mary in year two, she did prosecution work as well. So there's no holding back, you know, like, like this is the football, there's the pitch, go out and play, you know. Do you remember your first application? Do you remember the first time you had to stand I up do. in the court and yeah. talk to the judge? Oh God, yeah. Luigi rang me on the Monday. He said, so tomorrow, he said, which is Tuesday, he says, I think it was Tuesday morning, he says, you're going to make your first application in court five. Oh, very good. And he says, the judge is uh, Mr. Justice Martin Nolan, I said, grand, and you're going to be looking for a production order. I says, okay, what's a production order? He says, where somebody is in prison and we need to bring them before the courts because they've been taking a certain course. Maybe they're going to plead guilty to something. And the, um, so you go in and your, your opening line, would, may it please the court, uh, Mr. Ray, because that's my master, appears on behalf of Mr. X and he's instructed by such and such solicitor. And Judge Nolan said, and what's your application? Oh, it's for a production order, please, Judge. What prison? Wherever, Mountjoy Prison. And it's for Friday morning. My first application was just, I could see the breeze of my voice going through the court because I was like, wow, you know, you know, not control your voice. And I remember that. And the preparation for that took me all Monday night just to say those things, you know. I remember it well. Yeah, but I, I was prepped well. Did it go well? It went well. Exactly what I asked is exactly what I got. And the, um, I remember Luigi sitting, you know, about two rows ahead and he just looked back and just went, like that, you know, you know. And was that a lesson for you that all the things that you've learned, all the procedures, they work. And if you stick to what you, you know, if you do what you're told and if you do what you've been taught to do, things will be OK. Yeah. One of my friends, Fergal McSherry, was big into structure, you know. So if you've got an exam paper and they say, look, this is the exam, this is the structure of the course, this is what we're looking for. So Fergal was big into structure and he said, once you follow the structure and the guidance, you can't go wrong. So once I followed the guidance from Luigi, um, before I became a barrister and when I became a barrister following his advice, now the advice of Mary Torrance, I couldn't go wrong because I had this kind of safety net. And not only was the safety net of two brilliant people, I mean, years they're doing this, you know. So if something went wrong, I would tell them something went wrong and then we'd have to find a way to fix it if it needed to be fixed or if I said something I shouldn't have said, I'd have to correct it, you know. And the... Um, so if you stick to the structure and if you kind of, you know, know where you are, whether you can very, very incrementally move up or very, very incrementally move down, but not slide any other way or, or rush too far to the top. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just just one very quick question before we move on. Um, when you're deviling, and I'm not talking about yourself, I'm just talking generally, is that unpaid? Uh, yeah, what happens is yeah, at the time, uh, we, we'd have to pay our own fees. So you'd have to pay your fee to the law library. Now, the, when you're called to the bar, you're called to the bar of Ireland in the Supreme Court. 
And then you can become a member of the law library. So the law library is kind of, I'm not going to say a club, but we'd say it's kind of like, you know, it's a very important service within the courts. They're based in the four courts and they're based in the CCJ and other courts around the country. And instead of you being able to buy millions of books, they have those resources there. Instead of you going out to pay hundreds and maybe thousands on subscriptions to law websites, they do all that for you. you know, so when I walk into the CCJ in the morning, I have um, you know, Michelle and Heather and everybody else there to assist me with maybe printing stuff. I've got clean toilets, I've air conditioning. I hate air conditioning, by the way, but you know, I have a clean building of Wi-Fi. So when you pay the fee, it's for a service and it's a very valuable service. But when you go in, when I went in, I had to pay my own fees now. Uh, the master will pay the fees for the first year devil, you know. So, so for the first year devil, but at the time, yeah. But when you go into court, yeah, it, it, it is, it is unpaid work. You see, so that you know, just look from the outside. So you have to spend X amount, five grand a year at Dublin Business School. I'm sure it's a great service. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying you have to pay that. You have to pony up that money. Then you have to pony up twelve grand to become a barrister, and then you have to do the first year unpaid and you have to pay and the master pays your first year fees but really it, it sounds like six years of a hand-to-mouth existence that's exactly it that's exactly it you know and when i say to students i give talks in the courts so um the 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 court services run this uh, thing called the uh, look into law where for a week they'll bring students in from different backgrounds and let them spend a week with barristers and they'll have a look at how the justice system work uh, I, so what happens is that they, they run, I think it's the, the law, the, the Bar of Ireland runs that to look into law. Now the court services bring schools and regular and they'll come in like, you know, Monday to Friday and they run a mock trial from all different backgrounds. And I, I would explain to people how those, how, how the criminal justice system works, you know. Um, and then I bring students in myself from different backgrounds. Maybe somebody who was like me left school early, they're older. Or maybe they're thinking of leaving school younger. So when they come in, I'm telling them to, to stick at the education. So when I look at the cost of what it's what it's cost me to get where I am, it doesn't bother me that much because my life has been backwards. I should have done all this work when I was 14. I should have stayed in school. I should have gone through the system. I still would have happened to pay. You know, and maybe the burden would have fallen on my mum and dad. But it is a lot of money to hand out, knowing that even when you qualify, you still have to survive the next year on unpaid. You see that—that's my point. I just sometimes think it is a barrier to working class people like me and you getting in to the the, the bar or getting into work as a barrister because it sounds phenomenally difficult and phenomenally financially draining. And maybe people from, you know, better off families would have the support network around them. So, you know, you don't think it's an uphill struggle for working class people from the start? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's why. So it's not necessarily fair. Yeah, no, it's not fair. It is a struggle. Uh, Like Fiona had, uh, she was working and she said to me, you know, you look after the college and the things I look after the kids when the kids come along. And the same thing happened during the King's Inns. And then what happened was when I went into the law library, you know, Fiona gave me that support. If I didn't have that support, I wouldn't be a barrister. If I didn't have that support, I wouldn't be in college. And if I didn't have the support for that one year, and even where I am now, I wouldn't, <coughs> excuse me, have progressed to where I am now. So my fear is, is that I'm telling people when they come in is to spend a week with me or spend a morning with me 
or when I'm giving a talk, you know, anybody in the world can become me if they put their mind to it. But the reality is if they don't have the resources behind them, the independent resources, like from mum and dad, or maybe from their wife, or maybe savings they have up, you know, they're not going to make it, you know, and that's the sad part. So when you look at the Bar of Ireland, although it's very diverse, you know, I mean, the support I got from my colleagues, from the court services, from uh, the guardian there, from the prison staff, learning from the judiciary, you know, it, you can't pay for that type of service. But if you're trying to feed a family, trying to pay rent, trying to pay mortgage, and trying to even keep yourself going, you're not going to make it, unless you've independent resources. It sounds almost impossible, Darren. I have to say, it you know, well, it is. if I was in your shoes, mm-hmm. I, I don't know many working class kids who were, or working class men who were in your shoes or in your situation, how many of them would have been able to carry through? But I just think it's a massive that's struggle. That's why I said to you beforehand, it was luck. Remember, we had a conversation beforehand, it was luck. And that's what it is, you know. So when I was lucky to have met someone like Fiona, and when I was lucky to have met somebody like Luigi, and when I was lucky that I could change my job from a taxi driver and retrain as a healthcare assistant and get into James's. I mean, people may say, oh, well, you had the ability, you had to drive. Well, of course you did. But you only have to drive when there's people putting petrol into you, like, you know, when people are kind of moving you forward. And, like, I come from Finglas. Uh, I have friends. I, I actually helped two people go back to college. One is a barrister at the moment, and the other is trying to be a solicitor. And there's two other people, let's say, in the system. And the two people who, who have qualified, one is quite young, and I think their parents may be helping them there. But they're working for a solicitor's office and they're getting paid at the moment. Uh, the second person, I think, is independent resources, so they're okay there. Um, but other people coming in, if they want to practice as a barrister, and unless they have money behind them, it's not going to work. And that's where the failure, that's where they have raised the bar too low, if I could, if I can put it in, in that respect, you know. Okay, let's keep talking about money. Uh, people, every year... There's a list put out about certain barristers who earn big money. Mm-hmm. And there is a perception, and I, I, I was guilty of this myself, there is a perception that when you, the struggle's over, when you get into the law library, you've done your devilling and you're on the road, you're, you're really, you start earning a shed load of money yeah. straight away and barristers are loaded. Yeah. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's not the reality. No. No, far from it. And people think that, you know, you'd watch television and you'd see the barrister, the wig and the gown and, and the tabs and all that. And they, it's great. It looks glamorous. You see them in America, you know, it is glamorous. They're dealing with very difficult cases. But like a journalist, I mean, when you write something on a piece of paper that has to go out, the work that went into that and the talent and the years of preparation and qualification and skill that went into writing the article, people sometimes miss that. When you go to, you see... Someone does the weather. I should run for 20 seconds to earn a fortune, but the whole preparation of getting this thing right. So the whole preparation of becoming a barrister is a lot, as we've talked. But people who prepare cases, especially at the higher levels where you, where you talk about the higher money, as Luigi has said recently on an interview, they're dealing with highly technical cases. You know, and anybody at the top of their game, whether they be a consultant, whether they be a musician, whether they be a journalist or somebody on television, or maybe they're, they're an executive, they're the best of the best to perform that particular task. If you were going to St. James's Hospital tomorrow, and let's say you had a difficulty, like God forbid, I mean, you 
it's humor. You go to Professor Reynolds, he's the best, you know. You have a difficulty with your ankles, you go to Mr. McKenna, you know, and the uh, Johnny McKenna because he's the best, you know. So you're not going to have somebody who's only learning their trade to cure the situation you have. When you come to the course, the situation you're in is you've been cured, you've been accused of a criminal offence. So when you see this large amount of money being listed at the end of the year, 400,000, that includes VAT, as far as I'm aware. So I think you can take roughly a third of that away. And the case or the money that was paid this year doesn't necessarily mean that all the work was done that year. That case probably began two years ago and it had to go through the system, you know, and maybe there was volumes of disclosure um, and maybe there were lots of prison visits and maybe there were lots of consultations and there were other court appearances before that trial happens. So that four or five days or two weeks that you see the barrister on his or her feet is um, the pay is not for that. It's for the preparation that maybe took two years leading up to that. But you're dealing with highly skilled people, dealing with you know highly technical areas of law and it's becoming more technical and more complex as we go along. I'm not at that level. I'm on the other level. I'm down the district court level, um, the 25-20 level. However, um, you're you're a qualified barrister and you've got eight years experience. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you're you're now involved in a campaign to raise the plight of barristers, of your I don't know use the word grade of your experience or you know district court barristers yeah. or barristers in general. Do they earn enough money? No. To live. No. How bad is it? How bad well, is I'm it? I'm not earning enough money to live. I live with somebody who's paying for me to live. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm married to somebody. When you go into the district court, is people. If I've explained this to simplify for myself, but maybe for the listeners or viewers who wouldn't understand, anybody can get themselves into difficulty today. Anybody. I can go out and drive my wife's car, think I'm insured, and get stopped around the corner and not be insured. You know, that's how simple it is, you know. And it's up to me to make sure I am insured. So if I'm in the district court tomorrow, I can go to prison for that. I can get banned, you know. So on the first appearance in the district court, if I'm being represented, the, the barrister or solicitor will look for disclosure, which is all the information the guards are going to use against me. Um, they may want a bail application. Maybe I'm in custody. And they may have to apply for legal aid. You know, So under the criminal legal aid system, I personally would qualify for criminal legal aid, even though I'm a barrister. I don't earn enough. So what will happen is that the barrister representing me in court on that day will have to meet me that morning, meet the guard, look through the disclosure if we have it, make the bail application, maybe make a contested bail application, and €25, Euro 20 cents is the fee for that. You see, I find that outrageous. I was, when you were talking, I was thinking in my head, right, for that sort of stuff, for a day rate, it sounds like a day's work. It is. It's more than a day's work. You get told tonight that yeah. somebody's being brought in tomorrow and then you take it you stop what you're doing you stop watching EastEnders or going for a walk with the kids your mind is switched you go home you start looking up to stuff and then you go to court the next day and it looks like you're on your feet for five minutes and happy days it's done I was sitting in court yesterday um, I think for about just over two hours before the case was called sitting with the client in the court and we had this conversation about the criminal legal aid scheme and uh, my fee that out of tracks is 25 euro, 20 cent. See, I, I would think, let's call it a day rate or, you know, a, sec, a, a section rate. I would have expected it to be, don't laugh, it'd be three or 400 quid. Everybody thinks that. When I sat with a client yesterday, we had watched CCTV footage, three files of CCTV footage. And I think one of them was 20 minutes and we had watched it. We had a consultation. We went into court. Uh, we wait for the list to be called. The courts are very busy. 
uh, eventually it was called and we dealt with the matter and the matter probably took, we were seeking a hearing date, you know? So I'd say the application took maybe minutes, you know? And people may look, oh, she's 24, 20 for those minutes. But I mean, I had to advise the client what the best thing was to do. I had to take his instructions or her instructions in relation to what they're being accused of and, you know, build it from there. Now, if the client decides on the next date to plead guilty to that offence, he or she may bring, let's say, reports from their doctor, or maybe they had difficulties in their life, and maybe they had reports or character references, or there might be even a victim impact report from, let's say, the, the victim of the crime. So when I get into court for the plea and mitigation to say to the court, look, he did it, he's pleading guilty, but let, let me just maybe just explain to the court how this came about, you know? And you could be on your feet for 15, 20 minutes, and the fee for that is 50 euro and 40 cent. In 1994, when I started, I got my sort of first freelance work in journalism. This was in Belfast. I was paid 50, 45 pounds for an entire shift. Right. Now, that was 1994, 1993, 1994. I'm just staggered that a barrister today in 2023 Ireland would get that for a, a mitigation plea. And, I, I just, and it's, it's just, worse. how can anybody live? If it's a full trial hearing, it's 67 euro. So if you actually contest, although I didn't do that, you know, um, or if you want the guards to prove their case, I mean, you'd have a, maybe a whole van full of guards coming in. If the case could last two or three hours, 67 euro, defeat, it, it attracts a feat. Now, just to be fair, that sometimes it is open to the barrister sometimes to make an application in the district court for a circuit court rate. And the circuit court rate is 572 euro. Now that sounds like a lot. You don't get it all the time. It's not mm. the standard, you know. So it's a big jump from 67 to 572. I have got some of those. I did get some of those. And recently I did a case where there were 24, I think it was 24 digital files. I think 22 of those had video footage on them. And one of those files contained 30 hours of footage. So if you wow. just got that file alone, and broke it down into 67 euro or 50 euro if the client is pleading or even into the 500. That's just for one file. It's not that much when you look at the time, the skill, the Mm. insurance, the time away from your family. Uh, One of my friends, one of my colleagues, Anya Holt, had said something brilliant and uh, she used to be, I think she's a retired principal or assistant principal, and she says every minute of the evening you're doing something else for free. It's it's the time you're spending away from your family, you know? And it took somebody like, you know, to actually tell me that. So we started a campaign. And last year we did two protests. Um, I think one was for 15 minutes and one was for a half an hour. Now you may think, but sure, that's no big deal. In the legal world, it was a big deal, you know, to get that thing moving. Uh, we did a petition to the European Commissioner, um, uh, Paolo Gentiloni, and we did a petition to the Minister for Justice that was signed by 88 senior counsel and I think a hundred and odd junior counsel, I have the figures here, it was uh, Bert Reno. Yeah, so that was 188 senior counsel and 182 junior counsel. And we were seeking three things. One was direct payment for the barrister in the district court, because there is no direct payment. We get half what the solicitor gets. And also for the unwinding of cuts that happened long ago. Now, the unwinding of cuts happened long before it became a barrister, you know. And I think some people are saying, like, they're in the range of... There's different percentages being put in. Nobody has a, a real true figure on it. 
But even if we got the unwinding of cuts at district court level, even if it was, let's say it was 50%, I mean, 50% of 25 euro, 20 cent is not a lot for the, and then you have to wait for the money. You know, you have to wait for the, the, the solicitor to put in the claim and then they have to be paid and then you have to be paid. So this year, uh, we did a, a thing called the celebration of failure and it lasted a whole day. It was from the 2nd of May from 10 a.m. and it lasted until uh, 3 p.m. where I was just out in the steps for the whole day. And I think 70 colleagues joined us um, on and off throughout the day. And it happened around the country in many courthouses. We have a second one coming up on the 14th of July. And what we're asking the state is quite simple. Look, I'm at the, the lowest end of the courts. I, I can't go any lower, you know. I love my work and all I want is a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. And that to pay somebody 2,002 rates, and then I have to walk into a shop and pay 2,023 prices, as Luigi Ray says, it's just, you just can't get your mind around it. And it's justice on the cheap. We're dealing with people. I mean, some people may say, oh, he deserves to be before the courts or she deserves to be before the courts. Well, maybe they do, but they deserve the best representation and the best resources. So the resources I put into it and all the effort I put in is mainly based on hope and goodwill the hope that the, the cuts will be unwound and we'll get paid directly from the state. And the goodwill is, is well, should we not get paid for half the stuff that we do? So it has to change. What do you think? So 25 euro is the, is the rate. Yep. Okay. 25, is it 25.20? 25 euro, 20 cent. Yeah, there you go. Okay. What, what, what do you think a good rate would be for that? And say 67 quid for the mitigation, what would be a good rate for that? Well, I can't tell you what a good rate would be, but I can't tell you this, that the DPP has said, and I just have the quote here, that the level of funding that she has, her department, is not sufficient to deliver a modern prosecution service. So the DPP, who has millions of her resources and highly skilled people, <clears throat> if she doesn't have the resources to deliver a modern prosecution service, well then how can I have resources at twenty five twenty to deliver a modern defence services on my level? Or even if I get things in the circuit court. So what has to happen is is that it has to be revisited and it has to be looked at. So the first thing that has to happen in my view is unwind the cuts. The second thing that has to happen is give us direct payment, please. If we get direct payment, it removes that administrative burden from this lister. And not only does it do that, the government get the tax straight away, so the withholding tax. So we get our money fairly quick. Now there will be a bit of a burden on the, the court services, maybe to you know implement a new um, <coughs> excuse me payment system. But we're in the modern day of technology. I'm sure that can be overcome. So once we get the fees unwound, and once we get the direct payment system, well then we have to look and bring everything in line to what the DPP needs is a modern prosecution service, and we need to reflect that in the defence work that we've done. So my view is there hasn't been a proper assessment in that. We're dealing with highly digital, lots of digital evidence, mobile phone footage, camera footage, um, victim impact statements, you know, volumes of information. So it's very hard to measure uh, on a, just an overall scale what the figure should be. I think we have to look at what types of cases are becoming before the courts, the work that goes into them, the resources that are needed. I'm talking to you on the laptop now where the battery's not working too good. I have it plugged in. I had to buy a Chromebook um, on Little Woods, which is very now. And the Chromebook cost me, I think it was 320 euro. It's a backup to this thing here that I have in front of me now. And I have to pay it off my own resources. I'm not going to send the bill to somebody. 
But like there's a monthly fee now I have to pay to pay off that bill out of the 25.20s I get, you know? So you, and it's probably a fair point, you don't know what a good price, good value is or a good price is, but you know what the bad, what the bad money well, is, you know, which is what you're earning well, you know at the minute. what the bad money is. I mean, you know, if you have like 25 euro, 20 cent, sometimes you might get five cases in a day. You'd be lucky if you get five. I had two yesterday. So I walked out with 50 euro, 40 cent. The suit I was wearing a few weeks ago, I paid 26 euro for it to be cleaned. So I have a three-piece suit with an extra pair of trousers. And I, I bought that years ago. So I, I left it to be cleaned with the trousers. So that was 26 euro. I was looking at, at um, Woody's not too long ago and I put this up on my LinkedIn page. There was a, a I, I, I don't know anything about plants. I just know you water them and they grow, you know. And yeah, there was a, a two-headed spineless yucca plant on sale. So the sale price was 26 euro, or 29.99, you know. So, it, so when you kind of, you know, compare what you're getting to what the cost of things are in society, it, it's just laughable. You know, and people's liberty is on the so forget me, forget me trying to run a business. Let's look at the victims of crime here. How confident are they gonna have that the DPP is actually putting the right resources, you know, into prosecuting cases? And no doubt she does. No doubt her team puts the, the best uh, people in and, and the best will in the world and the, the highly skilled people to run the cases. Um so if I've been accused and they're asking the questions now. Well, hold a second, I mean, 25 euro, 20 cent for you representing me, you know? So what kind of value am I getting for that? And I'll tell you what value you're getting for. You're getting three years of me being in Dublin Business School. I think it was around 5,000 a year. You're getting me being in the King's Inns. I think it was uh, 12,000 for the two years. That's 6,000 a year. You're getting uh, a year of me working unpaid and trying to get a bit of work here and there. And in 2023, you're getting me trying to go off and get laptops on credit, Chromebooks, in order to make sure I try to keep up to date with what's happening in the criminal justice system. Do you worry that the the financial remuneration for, I, I don't want to say young, but, you know, first phase of barristers, yep. do you worry that there'll be a brain drain, that people will just go, F this, forgive me, darts, I'm out of here? It's happening. It's happening. I got a message on LinkedIn from somebody about two days ago. And this person told me that people in their class studying law will not be going to the bar. For two reasons. One, because of the low rates of pay, um, which seem to be acceptable to some people. And two, because nobody has done anything about it. I mean, we have a department, uh, I think it's the deeper department, who are refusing to engage with our professional body. Refusing to engage, you know, and once you kind of meet that wall, well, then there's no other place to go. So my fear is, is that all the diversity we have out there. So all the kids that grow up in Finglas, Blanchettstown, Fox Rock, Cavan, Newry, Belfast, is that the reality is unless they have a few bob in their back pocket from a different life, or maybe they have a part time job, or maybe mum and dad have a few Bob, or maybe they got a grant, they are not going to make it. I'm lucky at the moment. I do have an independent resource. I'm actually working, not now. I actually do a bit of part-time work to keep my practice going and to take the burden off Fiona. I actually am doing, I'm actually, I'm actually working a separate job to keep my professional job going. So if you look at a doctor 
I mean, there's no doctor looking down your throat today or examining your knee, saying, look, I have to go at four o'clock. I have to go off and do something else, you know? I mean, it, it, it's, just, it, it's, it's totally unacceptable. It's been commented on by uh, Mr. Justice Barnable had said twice on, on two occasions, and he had said in, in the Bar Review in April 2023 that the most important area of work in our system is people who prosecute and defend. I just can't understand how the work they do can be so undervalued. And this is the president of the High Court. Then he had said in the Irish Times, he says that he strongly supports the money of cuts and that prosecution and defence people must be paid properly. It's vital in any democracy operating on the basis of the rule of law. So we have rule of law concerns from the president of the High Court. Now, to be fair, uh, Minister McEntee did say that she supports the unwinding of cuts. I think uh, Charlie Flanagan has said he supports the unwinding, what he calls swinging cuts at the time. Simon Harris, I don't think he said much about it, but I think he's just the in, the interim justice minister at the moment. I think he's kind of hands over the reins again to uh, the hell of Yeah, she's back next week. Yeah, she's back next week. But, but to be fair, I know she's not back now. I know she, would have, she, she had a baby, you know. Um, but whoever the justice minister is today... And last year, it's their responsibility to make sure we have a functioning criminal justice system. We can't be passing the book to the Department of Money, you know. And if they are passing the book to the Department of Money, and if it is the, the Department of Public Expenditure who are not unwinding these cuts and think that we're not good enough, and if everybody wants the restoration of cuts and a proper functioning criminal justice system on the on rule of law basis, well, then should there not be an inquiry into that department to say why? It's 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 very worrying. You you ha- you are a professional. You have a profession. I I have a trade. I'm proud to say that I'm a trade. But I'm but the reason why I'm saying about profession is your job is much more important than mine. So you have a profession, and I just find it very worrying that you're fighting for somebody's liberty. That's what you're doing. You're fighting for somebody's liberty on behalf of us all, on behalf of the state, the constitution, and and you know. You have to have another job. I, I, I find that unco- that's unconscionable. It, but nobody wants to do anything. And I, I had written down a few points here um, just because mm. I knew it was coming on today. And I, I tried to, I went out for a walk today. I wasn't in work today. And lots of people that go before the courts, not everybody, but they deserve to be there, right? Because, and there's other people who are accused of things and maybe they didn't do it. So when you do something bad, and if you plead guilty or if you're, if you're found guilty by a jury or a judge, is that the appropriate punishment must be put in place, right? But then you have people who are punished when they were born. You have people who are born into addiction, you know? And when they're born into addiction, they may go to, maybe mum and dad has died. Maybe they go to foster homes or into state care, or maybe they, they run away from home, you know? So when I go to represent somebody in court, I'm possibly representing somebody who I could have been if somebody didn't kind of pick me up and dust me off and sent me back to school. I mean, when I wear my gown and I wear my tabs, that's a uniform. It's like a set of overalls. It's no difference to a mechanic. He or she must get the car ready so you're going to drive down the street and you don't kill somebody, you know? Uh, If you go to a doctor, he or she will wear the protective things during the operation or maybe they're in a COVID ward and they have to make sure everybody is safe and you do your job properly. And lives are at risk. 
But when you're accusing somebody of a criminal offence, we do have some people who are wrongly accused, and then we have people who are rightly accused. You know, and regardless what side of the defence they're on, that there has to be a proper criminal justice system in place. That is not in place. It's justice on the cheap. It has to be fixed. So if I was to bring it back to me, people are saying, oh, well, he wants more money for what he does. Well, the answer is, yeah, I'm 50. I may be gone next year. And what will happen is that all the resources people have put into me, Luigi Ray, Mary Torrance, um, the guards, my colleagues around me, Peter Levert, who works close to me, uh, Michelle and the law library, Heather, um, people who have kind of nurtured me to become where I am and to remain there for a period of time, all that work they've put into me will be gone. It'll be gone to a different profession, maybe a different area of law, or maybe I'll go back driving my taxi again. But the next person comes in, I fear for them, because would you keep on watering plants knowing that they're going to eventually die or move on to different uh, glasshouses, you know? And that, that, that's my fear. So, you know, like, it's kind of like this one's for the children, like, you know? It's for people coming in after me. It's for students um, who, are, who want to practice law, who were like me, who never went to school, or maybe they did. Maybe they want to do themselves proud. Maybe they want to do their family proud. I've done myself proud. I can't believe I have, like, a, I have an honours degree law. I have a barrister law degree. City College has sponsored me for a, a criminal psychology uh, diploma, John O'Keefe and Philip Burke. I had no money. I had not have been, you know. And they... they they prepared me for the entrance exams for the King's Inns. They gave me an extra qualification by doing an extra course. But the money I hadn't got back then is still the money I don't have today. And I am that professional. And I, I, I just worry about the people coming in. I'm going to end this on a, on a positive. Yeah. Tell me what you like about being a criminal barrister. I love it. I love being self-employed. I love going in to sit beside people and... Um, Mainly people who are fell on hard times, maybe people who took serious wrong turns in life, or maybe just life wasn't the life I had. You know, I love going in. I love listening to their story. I love putting a plan in place. I love explaining to the court, look, you know, let's not do anything for them, or you know, they shouldn't go to jail. I love saying to the court, look, judge, I love telling the story. This is how they grew up. You know. I love defending them. I love listening to them. Uh, they are me, the people from my community, the people from your community. Um, I love the fact that I've worked so hard to get where I am and I'm still doing it, you know? So I love everything about it. I love the challenge. Um, I love public speaking now, getting into public speaking. I love telling students my story. Um, I love when I do the, the talks in the morning time to students coming in for the hour. I get paid 55 euro to talk to students in the morning time. And I tell them in that hour of 45 minutes what it's like to be me. Then I walk at the court and be me for 25, for 25 euro. It's mad. So I, I love when I've got everything, like, you know, 50 years of I've had a good life. I've had a great time. I've had an exciting life. I had a sad life. I had a tough life. And I love being able to just bring all those things we're all the qualities from Luigi Ray and Mary Torrance and Peter Levert and just using them in the way they should be used. Common sense approach, telling judges or telling maybe probation service or advising people to do the right thing. I just love every second of it.
you know? Okay, and I, I get the sense that you would do it for free if you had to. Well, doing most of it for, that for free anyway, you know? It, it's Tony McGillicuddy got into my car. I, I was driving a taxi one day, and this lady got in, and I, we were talking about evidence. And she said, do you have a pen there? And I said, yes, yeah. so she got a pen. I said, do you have an A4? I took an A4 page out. And she says, look, here's an article, she says, by this barrister called Tony McGillicuddy. I'm not going to tell you where to get it. You have to get it, but there's the name. I said, Grant. Went back to um, to the rank in the criminal courts of justice, had Tony McGillicuddy's name on the piece of paper. I left her on the seat. This guy got out into the car with loads of other people. This guy got in the front. And he says, what's my name doing on a piece of paper? And it was Tony McGillicuddy, right? And I was telling him I was studying law, and I told him what happened, you know, and he, he was lovely. And Tony said to me, you keep on going until something stops you. And that was when I was studying. So nothing has stopped me yet. My dreams haven't stopped me. My nightmares haven't stopped me. Um, my hunger for the work hasn't stopped me. The support from the Bar Council, from my colleagues hasn't stopped, you know. But unfortunately, I'm going to fall short on the, the defence of the finance, you know. And I have to make a choice this year. I have to see what I'm going to do. Um, it's a shame. It's heartbreaking. But it's a business decision. And yeah, myself and Fiona have been talking about it and we're thinking we might be able to give it another year to keep the campaign going and to put resources in. We're, on, we're kind of on a run now to keep things moving and hopefully something will change. So my future is exactly like my past. It's built on hope, hoping that this will be fixed. It's built on goodwill. I'm doing a lot of stuff for nothing. But a lot of people put resources into me for nothing. And then it's the hope of people like you and radio shows and television shows who give the likes of me the opportunity to put, not, I love my journey. It's a very positive journey. Um, but to make it work for everybody, I want everybody to have an opportunity to be me. But at the moment, the opportunity for me to remain me is becoming very, very slim. We had a colleague leave not too long ago and um, heartbreaking for somebody to actually oh, go, it, it's just heartbreaking. Now, they went on a business decision, you know, because they couldn't keep things uh, going the way it is. And the, um, I'm 50. I've no pension. I've no holiday pay. I've no sick pay. Um, I just have to keep myself healthy, not go on holidays. I, uh, my daughters are 13 and 12. They've never been on a holiday abroad. They've never been away. A lot of their friends at school have. They've never been away on holidays. They've been away, like, you know, on day trips here and there. They've never been abroad. They've never been on, on a plane. So all the effort I'm putting into, you know, becoming a barrister, obviously, you know, would have taken a lot of resources, we'd say, out, out of the, the person, the family home. Um, but now that I'm working as a professional, even my daughters do be slagging me, you know. You're going into work for 25 euro, 20 cents, you know. So the positive end of it is I'm here I'm still here. I'm not haven't burned out yet. Um, it looks like I'll be here for the next maybe hopefully six months, you know. It looks like change is gonna happen, but the reality is the Department of Justice or Department of Public Expenditure, they can blame each other all they want. They're gonna to have to get their house in order, they're gonna to have to get their finger out. The reality is that I'll go off and get another job, but the people coming before the courts, victims of crime and accused people need that proper representation. They need that proper skill. And the more people that leave, the less experienced people we have to take their place. Uh, Darren, 
Darren Lawler BL. I'm sure that all my our listeners will join in with me and wishing you all the best and hoping it does work out for you. And thanks a lot for joining us today. It was a really, really interesting and really fascinating chat. Could I just say one thing mm. just before I go? After all that gloomy story, a message to all students up there. If you have left school early because of many circumstances, maybe it's money, could be personal circumstances, try to go back to school at the earliest opportunity. If you can't, maybe apply for grants, go to your politician, try to get back into school. If you're like me and, you know, you're at, at the time I was 36, and if you felt that there's no future for you in education, you're wrong, right? Try to get the support, try to contact me. If I can help you, contact me. We'll go for coffee. We'll put a plan in place. I've no money, but I can tell you where I did, and maybe that can help people. But everybody, whether they're from Fingers, Ballymun, Uri, Belfast, anywhere, Fox Rock, you know, you can be anybody that you always should have been. You know, try not let things stop you. Take Tony McGillicuddy's word. Keep on going until things stop you. And when they do stop you, reassess where you are and get over that hurdle again, you know. There's always a future for people, and sometimes that future is limited, but go for it. I'm a prime example of going back to school. I'm thrilled to share my story. I'm very proud of what I've done. And uh, I didn't think I would have lived until 50. You know, I'm 50. I'm a professional. You know, one is not being paid properly. I'm still a professional and I love what I do. So go back to school. If you're in school, stay in school. If you have difficulties in school, get the help you need. If I can help you, contact me. Simple as that. Brilliant. Darren, that was brilliant. Thanks very much today for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you.